It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, 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 everybody. Welcome to Sunday Civics. I am your host, your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And this morning, I have a wonderful person to bring to the front of the class, and we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation. So I want to actually get right to our guest, who I have wanted to be at the front of our class for a very long time. And it just so happens he and his team randomly responded to an email request, and I'm so glad that they did. (laughs) Um, And so I want to welcome to the front of the class for the very first time, the 82nd United States Attorney General who served under President Barack Obama. He was the third longest serving attorney general in the United States history and the first African-American to hold that office. And he's now serving as the chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Welcome to the front of the Sunday Civics class, Chairman Eric Holder. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Thank you so much for responding and and being here. Sure. Hey, well, you know, Civics, uh, New York, I, I had to be there. Yes, thank you so much. Well, you know, I'm going to begin where we begin with every guest who comes on for the first time by because we believe in the power of storytelling in our culture and, you know, at this show. So we're going to start with you telling the story of your first civic action. You know, it's interesting. I I thought about that question. And I think my instinctive reaction was to say uh, the first time I cast a vote. Uh, when I was 18, and that gave me the feeling that I was participating in our democracy in a, in a serious way for the first time. But I actually thought about it, and I actually think that my first really serious civic engagement was when I ran for a student body president when I was in the ninth grade. Um, at the time, I, I thought I could do things to make life better. Um, you know, the existence of students in junior high school, 145 in, in Queens, better. You know, a little optimistic, perhaps, as a ninth grader. But I thought that um, participating in the civic life of that school was something that was uh, important. So I'd actually kind of I'd say the vote was obviously extremely important. But I think running for, um, you know, for student body president and winning um, was probably my first uh, my first real civic involvement. I like how you threw in there that you won. <laughs> you know, you had to make it clear. <laughs> That the only thing that you is that the only thing you have run for actually because attorney general is appointed. So was that the only actual election that you've done in your lifetime? No, I think I've had a couple of other organizational elections, but nothing really matched being you know the the student body president of junior high school one forty five Joseph Pulitzer Junior High School in Queens, New York. That uh, you know after that everything was downhill. <laughs> Well, I'm sure we all beg to differ in that. But having you grown up in Queens, I grew up in Rosedale, so not too far. And the, you know, so many people who have joined the show talk about that moment of running for, you know, student body president or on the student body council overall. And that is their like first interaction or first taste, if you will, of participating in some type of civic life. You have to run a campaign. You have to listen to constituents, you know, and giving people, giving young people that information, that taste kind of sets them up to maybe be attorney general one day. 
Yeah, you know, it was interesting because there was a campaign. We had um, assemblies where we presented our, our platforms to the to the student body. I remember cutting out, um, you know, little things that people could pin on their um, on on their shirts, their blouses. Uh, we had uh, the ability to put up, I think, remember a couple of posters, one poster per floor, you know, in, in the school. So it was a uh, it was as serious as Barack Obama's campaign back in 2007, 2008. I think the the Obama campaign probably learned a lot from the Holder campaign to be uh, to be you know student body president. Oh, boy. I'm going to have to remember that when we ever get him on the show. Although I want to nerd out with him on constitutional law, but, you know, maybe I'll I'll prick him on that. But I want to get to moving on now as you talk about being attorney general. And, you know, we talk a lot about the show or on the show about the positions that we elect right? And what they do. We've talked to, Tish James has been on the show to talk about the attorney general for a state. But Mm -hmm. I want to, before we get to the work you're doing now on redistricting, have you put into context for those who are listening and watching to give us a civics lesson on the role of the U.S. attorney general? What does it mean to be the chief lawyer of the federal government and to lead the Justice Department? Well, the the Attorney General of the United States, I mean, that's a, an extremely powerful position. You have a variety of divisions within the Justice Department. It really impacts virtually every part of uh, American life, a, a civil rights division, a criminal division, an antitrust division, an, uh, an environmental and natural resources um, division. Um, and the Attorney General is on, on the top of all of that. In addition, the FBI, the DEA, uh, the ATF all report to um, the Attorney General. There are about 115,000 employees in the Justice Department who are spread out around the world. And um, you have the capacity as Attorney General to impact um, the life of everyday Americans, but you also have the ability, and I think the duty, to bring about positive change in the lives of, uh, of Americans and indeed the world, because you're dealing with um, your foreign counterparts as Attorney General. I, you know, uh, forged relationships, um, both professional and personal, with my my counterparts in, in France, Germany, um, you know, the United Kingdom. So it's a it's it's a pretty interesting job. It has a lot more power, I think, than people um, understand. And it is the one job in the um, in the cabinet where the attorney general is kind of separate and apart from all of the other um, cabinet heads. If you're the you know the head of the transportation department, housing and urban development, you're really a part of the cabinet. You speak a lot to to the White House. The attorney general kind of sits separate and apart because of the fact that the attorney general has law enforcement responsibility. You have the ability to separate people from their property. You know, you also have the ability to you know, impose the, uh, the, the death penalty. And you don't want to ever have people think that the decisions you're making as attorney general are politicized. And therefore, you have to have a distance, a healthy distance from um, from, from the White House. I think what we saw in this past administration was a blurring uh, of that line, and the attorney general became a little too close, both to the president and to the White House, and people could legitimately claim uh, or be worried about what uh, Attorney General Barr was doing and whether or not he was doing political things as opposed to things that are more consistent with what his responsibilities were as, as attorney general. So it's probably the most interesting job that I had. Um, it came with an airplane, uh, which is one of the things I really, really miss. Um, you, there are five cabinet members who can't travel commercial. 
the attorney general is uh, is one of them. And so when you're the AG, you're never late for the plane. The plane is always waiting for you. And I've had to readjust to, uh, you know, flying, uh, flying commercial. <laughs> that is definitely a perk I did not know about. But, you know, you talk about this healthy distance from the White House and from politics. And when we're watching the attorney general, when we're watching things ha- unfolding in terms of what the Justice Department is doing, you know, quite often in government in general, people feel this distance uh, from government that they're, they don't see an entry point of how they can participate, how their voices can be heard. And certainly attorney general, because it's not an elected position, it's a, an appointed and then, you know, the Senate, you know, confirmation process of it. What would you say if there are any entry points into how the general public, how the people holds an attorney general? General accountable, the Justice Department accountable, or at least be able to engage with the Justice Department, not as a subject, <laughs> but in general? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, in an appointed position, you don't face the voters. Um, so as Attorney General, I didn't have to, as congressmen do, you know, go up for re-election every two years, senators every six, president every, every four. Um, but so there is, in a healthy environment, you know, there's congressional oversight, and you have to report periodically to Congress and go through um, hearings and try to explain um, what policies you've put in place, what decisions that that you made. And that can be, if done correctly, that can be a, a healthy thing. Um, I don't think we should underestimate the, capa- the power that we have as regular citizens, however, if we voice our opinions. Um, if we are, you know, forceful in, in holding meetings and gathering together in, in numbers and expressing our opinions, both as individuals and as members of larger groups, you, you know, if you're the AG, if you're somebody working for the AG, you're looking at the mail, you're looking at news stories, um, and although it might not have a direct impact on a decision that you make, at some level it has an influence. It has the ability to influence um, decisions that, um, th- that that are made. Um, you know, the, the AG ultimately reports to the president, who ultimately reports to um, the, the people. And uh, so if you make a decision that's incorrect or, you know, not consistent with what your responsibilities are, with what your duties are, the president can remove the attorney general or the president could respond, you know, to some popular concerns about a decision the AG has made. Though, again, there is supposed to be that distance between um, what the AG does and what happens in normal politics. And so you have to make sure if you're a president that you're picking correctly when you um, choose who your attorney general is going to be. Somebody, as I said, who's going to understand the need for that independence, the need for that focus on um, on, on positive change. Mm. So I can admit to you, Chairman Holder, that as an advocate, as a Black person in this country, I have a mixed review of the Justice Department, right, mm-hmm. of what similar view I have of the Supreme Court, right? Like there's a mixed history of these entities, these structures. We look to them to possibly intervene when our rights are being violated or we want greater oversight or issues to people to be held accountable. And it really depends on who is sitting in the seat and what administration exists that you can get some of that relief. And, you know, that's similar to whether you're talking about the Justice Department, the Supreme Court, right? It's not always a friend, <laughs> you know, if you will. Yeah. What? How, how do you put that into context for people to have trust and faith in, in an institution that has had this varied history? 
Well, it's not only the Justice Department or even law enforcement. It's it's government in in you know in, in particular. I mean, government specifically, um, government in, in its totality. Where you know Ronald Reagan said that you should trust, but verify. I mean, I, I think that's true. Of what any citizen should do with regard to the government that is supposed to serve us. I mean, we have had a mixed history in this nation when it comes to how law enforcement has interacted with communities of color. You know, how government, again, writ large, has interacted with communities um, of color. Uh, we look at, you know, the history of this nation. A lot of it is very painful. You know, you look at the way in which the Constitution um, was constructed, three-fifths compromise, um, you know, the enslavement of African Americans, um, Jim Crow, you know, you know they're, they're, all of this stuff was, um, a lot of this stuff was written in law. A lot of it was um, enforced by people who had um, law enforcement responsibilities. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, being skeptical of government makes a great deal uh, of sense. But never giving up, never being so skeptical that you decide you don't want to participate in, in government, that you don't want to participate in the political in the political process, but yeah, I mean, you know, you might have been happy that an African American was named um, Attorney General, serving in the administration of the first African American president. All right, and that's fine. And so for one day, let's let's celebrate that. But on the day after um, he's inaugurated, the day after I'm sworn in, the question then becomes: well, What are you doing? And are you doing it well? Are you doing it consistent with um, your responsibilities? consistent with your oath and consistent with the people who you are you are supposed to serve. Um, so I think, you know, skepticism makes sense, um, but that skepticism should not be so great um, that it results in you're pulling back from um, being engaged in the uh, in the government process. I think that's really important. I do have a healthy skepticism, you know, but also, you know, as in doing this show and training other people and engaging and my activism on a regular basis is really, you know, about participating, right? And that if you don't participate, so it's still moving on, <laughs> you know, other people are participating and engaging. And so your voice needs to be uh, at the table in order to make that happen. Um, yeah, I think that's a really important point. You know, if you don't engage, if you are not involved, people who are less committed, less idealistic, um, less focused on positive change will take your place. You know, our, uh, if we don't participate, a vacuum is created that will be filled um, by people like that. And the policies that ultimately then are enacted will not be consistent with our worldview, um, not consistent with the desires of the people who we represent, uh, not consistent with the interests of the communities from which we come. Um, so it's, you know, it's in that way to zero sum game. If you don't participate, somebody else will, who won't be um, nearly as good as you, um, nearly as idealistic as you are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to take our first break here and then let's talk voting rights when we come back on the other side of the break. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the 
are back with Chairman Eric Holder, um, who is joining the front of the class here on Sunday Civics. And we started the conversation talking about the role of the Justice Department, talking about the role of the Attorney General. And one aspect of that also is on voting rights. I know there were a number of issues and cases that came up during your time. And, you know, right now there are in, I think, about 43 states, voter suppression bills that are in state legislatures. There are also about over 30 states that are considering anti-protesting bills. So there are these state-level conversations about restricting people's participation in this process that we just talked about just before the break, right, of restricting people's participation, whether it be in voicing their dissent in the streets, in the public square or voicing their dissent or voicing a change in government in terms of their leadership by uh, changing who is actually eligible and can participate or restricting laws as it pertains to the vote. You know, I want to ask you, how do you see we need to continue to fight back? And I know Georgia is a perfect example in this time, but as you know, it's, it's sweeping across the country What do we need to do to actually make sure that this is not an ongoing issue uh, across the country? You know, I I think that's actually the defining issue um, in our country right now. What kind of America do we want to be? Do we want to really be true to our founding ideals? Do we want to have a democracy that operates for uh, all of the people or only for the special interests? Let me just be very frank with you. Republicans have made the determination that um, their interests are not consistent with a widespread voter turnout. They want to pick who should be able to come to the polls and vote and vote in an, in an easy way. Um, this is totally inconsistent with um, America at its best. And so we have got to fight that. And so, you know, we've got to file lawsuits where that's possible. Um, but I think people, you know, too often underestimate the capacity of regular citizens and the power that we have as American citizens. You know, um, segregation didn't end because its time was over. It ended because groups of people got together, you know, with great leadership, Dr. King and others, banded together, marched, demonstrated, and and pulled segregation down. Women didn't, women didn't get the right to vote simply because it was time. They got the right to vote because people got together, you know, largely women protested um, and made sure that that right um, w- was given to, to people, to women who, who deserved it. Um, just to, those are just a couple of examples of you know, the power of ordinary citizens banding together and demanding change. Or in this case, you know, uh, as we're dealing with these these voter suppression bills, you know, making sure that these bills don't go into effect, or if they do, trying to then pull them down and uh, and, and doing away with them. This is going to be an ongoing battle. Um, I think Republicans have made the determination that um, they're going to try to, you know, turn the, our democracy, change our our system of government so that it, um, it it favors them. They are comfortable being a minority party that has majority power. They've given up on the notion, it seems, of winning popular votes, winning you know the greatest number of votes. They're doing everything that they can to hold on um, to power. And ordinary Americans, regular Americans, um, you know, people who are listening, watching this show, have got to come up with ways in which um, they oppose that which um, you know the Republicans are doing. You know, I'd like to think 
you know, I'm a proud Democrat, and I'd like to think that you know we could have you know discussions between the parties. But what we're really talking about now is the fate of our democracy, and I'm not, only, I'm not being hyperbolic about that. I mean, I think this is really the defining issue uh, in our political life right now. It is something that every citizen has to be engaged in. Yeah, absolutely. And as we, you know, in in the case that struck down preclearance, right? So look at the states and New York was one of them. New York was, you know, it, it was always great to use that as a tidbit in classes where, you know, I would tell people, you know, what are what states and have a list of states on the board and ask them what states were included. And everybody always assumed the South, right? The South. Yep. You know, that, that was the only, no one ever assumed outright that New York, parts of New York were under a preclearance provision within the Voting Rights Act, right? That mm-hmm. the, there were districts that had this history of voter suppression activities that as they were making changes would have to come to the Justice Department and seek clearance before they made any changes because they had this history of being bad actors. So in the absence of that, we know that you know we are pushing forward for the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act to be passed um, so that we can get back to ensuring that things like some of these bills that are happening in the states don't have, you know, a, a pathway forward, you know, they'll be unconstitutional, but that won't prevent them, <laughs> you know, from attempting these actions. What, you know, for these states, whether in the South or, you know, in New York that had this preclearance provision and now don't have that, you know, what should activists and others be doing to try to protect their voting rights and that of average citizens? Yeah, I mean, just being engaged in the in in the process is, I think, the way we do it. I mean, certainly we've got to try to make sure that um, you know the, the federal laws are reconstructed such that we have, you know, a real we have real voting rights protection. The, the Shelby County case um, gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act. If that act had been in place and that Supreme Court decision had not occurred, what they're trying to do in Georgia, just for an example, would have had to gone through the Justice Department. I'm sure the Justice Department would have, at least the Biden administration's Trump, uh, Biden administration's Justice Department would have opposed it and I think would have won um, in court if Georgia decided to take it um, to court. So we've got to, we have to have, we got to pass the, the John Lewis bill and get a Voting Rights Act that will protect um, you know, citizens around the country. But at the focus, at the point you make is a really good one, that it can't only be the South. Um, we have This is a nationwide problem now. And you're seeing what's going on in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, um, you know, Pennsylvania, as well as the South, uh, New Hampshire, you know, parts of the Northeast. Um, we need to have nationwide voter protection. We need to put the Justice Department back in the mix to protect the voting rights of the citizens of, uh, of this country. So making sure that your, your, your congressman, your senator is going to vote in favor of um, that bill. I think that's important. But then, again, being visible in the way that citizens can be, you know, demonstrating, writing letters, you know, sending emails, sending texts, participating in, in phone calls. The American people, if they are united, if they are visible, um, that's the kind of thing that shakes politicians up, that makes politicians um, respond. Too often, we don't understand the, the power um, that, uh, that we have. One only has to look at history to understand that, uh, again, a focused, engaged American citizenry can change, um, can change the direction of the country. Yeah. Well, we say here at Sunday Civics, how does someone know what 
you need if you never speak to them? How can someone represent you if they never hear from you? And so whether or not it's something that you're against or you're for, regular communication with the people who represent you, regular communication with the government that you are participating, should be participating in is definitely um, important. You know, Chairman, one item I say on the show here too is a tidbit that there is no constitutional affirming right to vote, right? That your right to vote is based upon the states. The states be, are able to determine who is eligible. And in a lot of states, I know California, Connecticut, and Virginia, I believe have done this, where they've passed their own voting rights bills and pre-clearance provisions for their own state in the absence of having one at the federal level. I know in New York, we're you know in the midst of that battle right now so that there is some preclearance, at least from the state attorney general. So there are other options that you can do that even if while we are pressing towards on the federal level, ensuring because we still live in a state's rights society that we are also activating on the state level. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting thing. People are a little surprised by that. You know, this notion of a right to vote is not in our Constitution. It's not really in many in any of the statutes, federal statutes um, that we have. You know, there's some some voting protections that we um, that we find in, in legislation. I actually think that one of the things that we probably ought to do is maybe pass a constitutional amendment that says every American um, citizen has the right to vote. And if you have that in, enshrined in, in the Constitution, there are a whole range of protections you can then um, put in place, a whole number of practices um, that would be deemed unconstitutional. But in the absence of a federal um, amendment, I think putting that into law at the state level makes a great deal of sense. And recognize that the thing that defines this nation uh, more than anything else, the thing that makes this nation exceptional is the ability of citizens to impact the policy directions of the country. And that happens through um, the vote. And so we should have somehow recognize in a way that we do not now um, the fact that Americans have the right to vote. Well, one thing is clear, you are consistent in that, you know, people need to participate in this process and voice their opinion, continue to voice what they want and what they don't want. We're going to take another quick break and we'll be back with more of our conversation with Chairman Eric Holder. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We're with Chairman Eric Holder having a conversation about voting rights, the Justice Department. But I want to move now to the work that you're doing as chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. So this is personally my second cycle of working on redistricting. One of my many jobs, and I have a lot, I'm currently the redistricting project director at the Center for Law and Social Justice and working on redistricting as it pertains to the uh, city of New York. And I want you to share a bit about the work that you're doing now. And let's, let's, you know, keep that same theme of how people can be engaged and involved in this process. Yeah. um, You know, as President Obama and I were winding down our um, our governmental careers, we're trying to figure out what is it that we wanted to do in our um, post-government lives. And we looked at a number of issues that, um, you know, gave us concern and ultimately decided that, you know, the the 
the problem of gerrymandering uh, was something that had really had a negative impact on his ability to govern, um, put the special the interests of the special interests above the interests of, of the people, and we decided to attack that. So in January of 2017, we formed up the National Democratic Redistricting Committee uh, to combat the problem of gerrymandering. Every uh, 10 years after the, the census, the country um, redistricts. We draw new legislative lines at the state level and at the federal level based on population shifts. And we wanted to make sure that the process that happened it happens in 2021 um, was going to be a fair one. Uh, the problem of gerrymandering has been with this nation almost as long as we have been um, a republic. And by gerrymandering, by creating these safe seats for you know, representatives of one party or, or the other, um, you have people in, who serve in office then who are not responsive to the, you know, the people they're supposed to serve, who listen too often um, to the, the special interests. And so we decided to attack the problem. And so we have been working since January of 2017 to try to make sure that the process that starts um, this year and will go into next year, little longer than we expected because of the pandemic, uh, that that process will be, uh, will, be a, will be a fair one. I think that's really an important part because, you know, I remember sort of my first engagement with redistricting and I thought it was something that happened to us. I didn't think there was an entry point, even as an advocate, right? I just thought that, oh, they do that in DC. And then I was like, oh, no, it actually happens on a state level. Oh, okay, but they do that in Albany, right? It was something that there was no pathway. There was no door for the public to walk into to participate in the process. Can you talk a bit about continuing our same thing of participation? What should people be doing in their states, in their communities now in preparing for the redistricting process? Yeah, one of the reform measures that we're really pushing is to get citizens involved in the redistricting process. Um, in, in 2011, in at least a couple of states, you literally had state legislators going into a, a dark room, you know, drawing the lines and then just presenting them to the, uh, the other members of the state legislature and telling them to vote on them without any kind of citizen participation. The process is made better when citizens actually get a chance to um, participate um, in it. And so we have come up with um, a, a part of our um, effort is called All, All on the Line. That's our advocacy arm. Uh, and if you go to allonthelineorg you can read you know, all about it. Well, we are getting citizens um, involved in the process to make this process as transparent as is possible, to get citizen involvement, as much citizen in involvement as we possibly can, have people testify at hearings to make sure that when the lines are drawn, that communities are not split up, especially communities of color. Um, th there's a whole variety of, of ways in which citizens can be engaged, as I said, by testifying at hearings or insisting that there be hearings um, in, in connection with the line drawing process to monitor how the lines are, are, are being drawn. Um, to, you know, to do, again, uh, this, this, if you look at all on the line, um, there are a, a number of ways in which citizens can be engaged in and be a part of um, the redistricting process. Well, you know, since we have people listening from all across the country, right? What are some of who? What are some of the states that you are concerned about? That you, you know, maybe there are folks listening from those respective states that we can give them the charge right now that they need to, you know, take a look and be engaged in the process. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the states that give me the greatest concern now are those states where you have what are called Republican trifectas, where you have a Republican governor, and then both houses of the legislature are controlled by um, the Republican Party. That's Texas, Georgia, um, Florida. Those are the places that give me the greatest concern. Um, for states that were of concern back in 2011, we have enacted um, reforms or elected people um, to office who I think will do things in a way that's more consistent with our our democratic process. In Michigan, for instance, we supported and helped to create an independent commission that will draw the lines, takes the power away from um, the politicians altogether. That commission is going to have a series of hearings where people will be able to testify about the way in which they think the lines um, should be drawn. There are reforms now in Ohio that, that ensure that uh, the Democratic Party will be a part of the process in a way that they were not in, in, in 2011. <clears throat> but the states that give me the greatest concern, as I said, Texas, um, Georgia, uh, and, and and Florida, but that doesn't mean I'm not concerned about the um, the other states um, a, as well. In Colorado, we have an independent commission. We fought for fought for that, um, but every person should be looking at um, what process is used in your state to ensure that um, you are participating in the process and that you're having an influence on the process. And again, if you go to allonaline.org, we go state by state and identify what the process is like in your state and how then you can participate um, in that process. I think that's an important part. In some of the states that you are raising concern, I have the same concern, right? So, you know, and look at Texas and Georgia where they've had one greater population, right? Like in New York, we can definitely see there have been a lot of people moving out of New York, which is why we're projected to lose one or two congressional seats. So they've moved in all different places of the state, but then they've also moved out of the state. And some of the places that they've moved are some of the places we're concerned about in terms of redistricting, talking about Georgia, Texas, Pennsylvania, sort of all of those places where you do have this greater concern about people drawing lines that would benefit themselves and a political party. And I'm particularly concerned about Georgia and Texas, right, where we've seen greater diversity in terms of who are, are living in the state. And there have been some tension there if you, if we're going to turn partisan for a second and talk about democratic politics, where we've had opportunities or, or we can have the opportunities to you know, gain greater representation for the Democratic Party in in that space. So there are tensions there that, you know, we've seen in elections, but we will also see once these new lines are drawn and how the process will play out. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Texas, for instance, the Hispanic population has increased um, since 2011 through immigration and, you know, through um, through, you know the the uh, the birth rate you see in the Hispanic community, and so you would expect that in Texas you would see a greater um, number of representatives in Hispanic coming from his, the Hispanic community. I, I don't doubt that Republicans in Texas will try to draw the lines in such a way to minimize the power. Uh, not recognize the increase in the population uh, of the Hispanic community and draw the lines in such a way so that it benefits the the Republican Party. It's what they did in in, in twenty. That's what they did in twenty eleven. In Georgia, you see a much more um, diverse Georgia, and especially around the Atlanta area, 
the task that Republicans will set before themselves is to come up with ways in which they minimize the power of this new, more diverse electorate um, in, in Georgia and come up with ways, again, that they maximize the power of the um, Republican Party. So we'll be monitoring that and we'll bring lawsuits where that is appropriate. But that's after the fact. I mean, to the extent that we can engage um, with people who are in the process of doing a line drawing through citizen power, that's one of the most effective ways, uh, I think, in trying to thwart them from doing that, which I think they are you know, intent on doing. Now, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard in those states where the governor and both houses of the legislature are controlled by um, by the Republicans. But, you know, we do hard. You know, that's you know, Dr. King had to rip down uh, a system of American apartheid. And yet, you know, he and other soldiers in the movement did it. Just because something's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't engage in the process, doesn't mean we shouldn't try to achieve um, our objectives. And yeah, I think that's really important part to be able to, you know, some of the actions that we're going to take, some of the civic actions are going to be small, right? They're going to be small. They're going to be winnable. You'll be able to celebrate at the end of an election night that you <laughs> elected one person or you were able to stop a sanitation garage from being built, you know, where a park should be, right? Those smaller things that I always advocate, getting involved on a local level, on a small level, at least gives people the impression that if we band together and do something collectively, there can be wins. But then there are the larger pieces, like we're talking about in, in redistricting or voting rights or even law enforcement reform, right? Those are larger issues that require a step-by-step -step measurable goals or measurable campaign in order to see some success. Talk a bit about, from your personal experience, knowing that, right, you can have small wins, you can win a court case, you can, you know, win there, but then there are these larger monumental pieces that you have to chip at piece by piece. How do you set yourself up to be prepared for those battles? Well, you know, it's it's the small things um, and the, the the small victories, you know, gathered together, grouped together, that serve as the foundation for the big victories. The big victories don't just kind of happen on their own. It happens when an individual or a small group of people decide they're going to focus on something that seems to be small. You win, and then you realize, whoa, we've got power here. Um, and, you know, the politicians kind of recognize that this small group or this individual has accomplished something. You build on that success. You know, it's something smaller, small becomes a little larger, then becomes a little larger. You got more people and something that seems a victory in the moment becomes then a movement. You know, Rosa Parks decided an individual that she wasn't going to get up, you know, out of her out of her seat on the bus. An individual, one seat one African-American woman, and you think about how that small thing led to, you know, as I said before, the tearing down of an American apartheid system, 1964, um, you know, Civil Rights Act, 1965, Voting Rights Act. I mean, you can all kind of trace it back, not only to her, but other people doing small individual things. And I, I, know, I know sometimes that's hard to, you know, it's hard to imagine how, you know, opposing, you know, a, a, you know, a parking restriction, you know, on your block, you know, how that's going to lead to something big. You'd be surprised being civically engaged, um, monitoring, you know, government in, in your neighborhood, on your block, 
will lead to um, things that are you know much larger in, in scope. So there are no small victories. There are only important victories. And every victory um, is, is important. Yeah. And leading to that, as you mentioned, that was one individual, one instance. There was also this ongoing campaign, right? Like this ongoing piece. And so that became the, you know, the breaking of the dam that allowed for the preparation that was already happening to move forward. I want to lastly, as we begin to wrap up, turn our attention to what we are all feeling and experiencing just in this past week in terms of another big monumental issue, and that's of the reform of policing in this country. And, you know, want to provide a moment for you to talk about giving your time, both in the Justice Department, and I know the administration during that time put out some and, and did some reporting on best practices and moving forward in terms of policing in this country. But I want to give you space to sort of talk about in your view, in your mind, where we should be moving to and what are some steps that people can take locally um, to address this reform issue. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, the, in the Obama administration, we put together this 21st century police task force. And really, you know, a lot of the answers are contained in that report and the work of that task force in terms of, you know, recruitment of police officers, training of police officers, um, use of force, de-escalation uh, of the use of force. There's a whole range of things there that if people just pay attention to it, look at it, and then try to implement those measures, we could have ourselves in a much better place. I mean, there is a, um, a lack of trust between people in law enforcement and especially um, people of, of color in this country. And we have to acknowledge that. We need to understand, we have to be frank about that and understand the ways in which law enforcement um, has been used in, in this country to keep black folks, Hispanic folks, you know, in their, in their place. Um, that's not acceptable now. The um, excessive use of force um, that we can now document because people have, you know, their cell phones and can take pictures. Um, that's not acceptable. And, you know, people say, well, things are getting worse. No, actually, things are getting better. I mean, do you actually think that things were better in the 1950s, in the 1960s, when you didn't have cell phones? You think about the number of people who, you know, lost their lives, got beaten, got jailed for, for no good reason, but you couldn't document it. Then it was just, you know, your word against, uh, you know, some, some law enforcement person. Um, so I think things are getting better, but they're not nearly at the place where they need to be. We have too many instances of, uh, of the use of excessive force or where the first option is the use of force, as opposed to coming up with some way in which you try to de-escalate uh, an otherwise tense situation. So um, this is something, again, where people have to be involved. People have to demonstrate that they are concerned about the resolution of these issues, that they're going to demand fair treatment from people in law enforcement, that they want accountability measures um, put in, in place. There are, you know, at the state level, at the local level, um, you know, there are government entities now that are struggling with this issue and they're trying to come up with ways in which they solve for this problem. One of the things that they need to hear is, uh, is from the people. Um, people need to express both their concerns and what their possible solutions are to try to shape what is actually um, put in place. Uh, this is something where, you know, civic engagement on an individual level at these small meetings is really, really, really critical. Um, this is something that uh, individual citizens can have an impact upon. 
Yeah. And so, you know, I, I know it's a lot of conversation right now about, I know I personally believe and have been saying for a while, you know, that, you know, as policing has evolved and changed over just thinking over in the past 40 to 50 years, that we've significantly increased what we want law enforcement or what we've put upon law enforcement to do. Yeah. Right. And you know, using it basically as a catch-all in terms of addressing some of the problems and systematic problems, uh, systemic problems in our communities, be that in social services, mental health services, we sort of just thrown it all on police, right? Like police just do it, right? Without really taking a moment to think about, well, should a person with qualified immunity and a gun respond to a mother calling because her son is off her medication, right? Probably not. <laughs> you know, right. should a police right. officer respond to somebody calling and saying there's a homeless person in front of our building? You know, what 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 does it serve to do that? Is that the right method? And I think having that conversation and being able to sort of strip away and really get to the root of issues that cause those problems rather than responding it only res response is like a criminal response is that a police response from there. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think we need to reimagine the way in which um, law enforcement interacts with the communities that it serves. Um, you know, cops have a tough job. They've got to make some split second decisions that, you know, then get reviewed, um, you know, over time. You know, you, you have to sometimes put yourself in the moment, you know, could you make the, the right decision? Um, so they need to be adequately trained. Um, they need to be they need to be focused on and, and be conversant with you know the biases that we all carry, the implicit biases that we all carry. Um, but we also ask, I think, cops to do too much. You know, the examples you gave, where I think, are exactly right. You know, responding to uh, a situation where somebody's having an emotional, psychological um, problem, a breakdown of, of some sort. Do we need police officers to respond to that, or do we need to think about? law enforcement in a, in a different way and have people who are trained in those issues um, deal with a person uh, who is having an emotional uh, emotional problem. Um, you know, dealing with these the, the small, you know, I don't know, quality of life um, issues, um, not serious crimes. You know, Eric Garner was, was selling loose cigarettes. Do we need... I mean, do we need police officers to respond to, you know, to something, something like that? I mean, what, what, what's, what's the point? Um, so there's a whole range of things that we, we dump on, um, you know, on cops that could be done by other government entities who are better equipped to deal with those kinds of situations. Yeah. You know, one example that I use locally here, you'll appreciate it here in New York. So you, you know, we have stoops in, you know, particularly in Brooklyn and New York City, that there's actually a lot, you, you're not supposed to apparently drink on your stoop. Like you can't sit on your stoop and like drink a glass of wine or like a, a whatever. And so this is always bothered me. I was just like, you, how are you telling me what I can do on my own <laughs> like my own property. But, you know, and you would have instances of um, police officers walking blocks or things like that. And you would get a ticket right from a cop with a gun. And if you are belligerent, like I would be, it was like, you can't tell me what to do on my property. If I want to sit and drink, you know, Moscato on my porch, you know, on my porch or on, you know, my stoop, because it's 90 degrees outside. Like why, why should this be a law in this way? But Similar to that, why should a cop, right, with a gun 
respond to an issue such as that, right? Like if, yeah. if somebody were to complain or they were just walking or driving by. So it's those yeah. small little things that people assume are quality of life issues that actually end up escalating depending on what community you are in. Because how officer may respond in, one, in Upper West Side versus responding in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn may be different. Right. Well, see, but that's the key. How does the police officer respond? I mean, that is exactly right. You know, the response has got to be the same in the Upper West Side as it is as as Bed Stuy. You know, used to be the way it was when I when I, know, I, was, I, when, I, when, I when I was growing up. You know, um, and and so you know, so let's assume that you know, drinking on your your stoop is illegal. You know. Um, well, does that mean a police officer's got to engage with somebody, arrest somebody? Um, you know, you just it, the, the response, you know, either making a, a an informed decision to ignore what's going on there or interacting w- with the person who's doing the drinking in such a way that you say, you know, look, man, you know, you can't really do this. Um, I can give you a ticket. I'm really going to ask you to come, you know, coming up with ways in which you interact with folks such that, you um, you not precipitating um, an incident, escalating um, something out, out of proportion involves, this involves, you know, training. This involves also dealing with, uh, with again, these, these, these biases that we have. If you look at every person of color as a threat, well, that is really going to color, you know, your response. If you think that people in certain neighborhoods are threats um, or are not good people, that's going to somehow impact um, you know, how you respond in, to, to a situation. So, you know, there's a whole range of things that we need to do if we're going to reimagine um, what law enforcement looks like in, in this country. But individual citizens can and must be a part of, uh, of that process. Yeah. Well, Chairman Holden, thank you so very much for taking the time this morning to join us. I really do appreciate it. You've been on my bucket list and I'm glad you finally said yes to, to join us and to have this conversation. And I'm glad you're a civics nerd just as, just as I am. All right. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday civics and more ways for you to take civic action. Have a great day. Oh, it's cool.